of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. Let me read that again. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. This is God's word from John chapter 12, verses 1 through 19. The title of today's sermon is Christ's Glorification Frames Everything. Christ's Glorification Frames Everything. We're going to see how Christ's glorification frames the actions of the sisters in verses 1 to 8. And then we're going to see in verses 9 and following how Christ's glorification frames the actions of the Pharisees. And we're also going to see how Christ's glorification frames the actions of the crowds that sang, the crowd that sang Hosanna on that day. And we'll see that in the middle of the text. So we'll kind of take it verses 1 to 8 to begin with, and then we'll pick up verses 9 to 11 for our second point, but also the very end of this text. And then we'll end with the Palm Sunday portion of the text, which is verses 12 to through 16. So let's see this together today. Christ's glorification frames everything, every person's actions. In this case, these sister siblings in the first part, as well as the, the deniers of the Messiah in the second part, as well as the, the crowd that was opportunistic and hopeful, uh, but maybe a little bit uh, uneducated as to what the Messiah's purpose really was in coming the first time in the third part. So Christ's glorification frames everything. It does for us too. Let me take a step back for just a moment. My dad is fond as a child of quoting historical things, kind of developed a love for history and his children. And one of the things he would quote was the rhyme of the ancient mariner. In fact, I quoted this yesterday at the men's breakfast. Uh, Ours is not to wonder why. Ours is just to do than die. Uh, it was a, indeed a kind of a sad, somber piece of fate for, for those military folks to realize that they didn't have a lot of say in where they went and how much value was added to their work. And theirs wasn't to wonder why they were fighting the war. Theirs was just to do and then to die. And, you know, that is a sad, sad summary of what many people throughout history have had to endure. I think today, though, uh, indeed, the vision of the founding fathers of this country has allowed for us to have the, the space to wonder why. In fact, everyone with a social media account can muse on about why, right? Why this, why that, why that, why this, why this, why that, why that, why this. Uh, almost to excess. 
um, almost at times to the neglect of the sphere of, of responsibility, however small it may seem, to the sphere of responsibility that we have to take care of ourselves, to be faithful, to try to lead whoever we have charge over in being faithful, perhaps our home, our loved ones, perhaps a, a small cadre of people that we work alongside of or oversee in our jobs to try to, to help them see truth and justice, at least indirectly in those settings. So that philosophy has gone by the wayside, I think, at least since the Enlightenment affected the West, and the West was affected not only by that pluralism, but also by the religious underpinnings of Christianity, which has no doubt shaped a whole lot of what has been done for the good, not only for the ill, but of the good. True Christianity has affected the West in Europe and in America and by offspring across the world. Now, there's no doubt that Christ's glorification has framed everything for good and for ill, but I want to specifically ping off of that rhyme of the ancient mariner and say it like this. Ours is not to wonder why is a really bad motto if those that rule over us are selfish. But if the one that rules over us is unselfish, if in fact our great king came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many, then we don't necessarily have to always understand why in order to respond to King Jesus in faithfulness. Amen? And I think that could be a kind of basic operating principle as we take a gander at this text with fresh eyes. Christ's glorification frames everything. Sometimes we know why eventually, sometimes we don't. In the moment, especially, we often don't know why. And ultimately, we'll know why at the marriage feast of the Lamb. Because what has happened will have happened to bring glory to Jesus. And we will finally understand that. Nothing will foil the onward march of the kingdom of Christ. So first, let's take a look at how the actions of the sisters are framed by the coming glorification of Christ. And really, we might say the siblings. Look afresh at the first verses of John chapter 12, our text today. Six days before the Passover. So what, what is that exactly? Well, Saturday before Thursday is what that is. So we're situated a day later where we are in the calendar today. This is Sunday. But we would have been talking about on the, the calendar. We would have been talking about yesterday, Saturday. There was a Passover meal to come that week. But this was a different meal. They were in Bethany, about two miles outside of Jerusalem, not quite two miles. And Martha was preparing a meal in Simon, the former leper's home. And he was prepare, she was preparing a meal for Jesus. Now, Jesus had been hiding out in the country. He had been hiding out in Ephraim, as John 11 records. And it was reasonable to wonder if Jesus would show his face during the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, culminating in Passover. Would he avoid the city? Danger lied in the city. But, of course, so did opportunity. People were in the city. Estimates were, are that Jerusalem's population swelled during this festival from about 40,000 to maybe six times that. Could have been close to a quarter of a million people. Jews flocked in from everywhere 
during the first day of the Jewish week for the triumphal entry, as we now call it, but the first day of the week for this Passover. There's a great pilgrimage festival that these people wanted to take part of. They had to be purified for it and readied for it. And this would become the context of the ultimate Passover lamb, the one that died to take away the sins of the world. This really is the first day of the last week of Jesus' earthly life, of course, before his crucifixion and resurrection. The Romans were worried about the excitement that the Jewish religious people had with their fervor during this week. The Romans were the occupying force. They were the global power of the day. Nothing happened in the known world without the approval of Rome. The Pharisees and other religious leaders in Jerusalem were cozy with the Roman rulers. They were friendly. And they had that it was unwise for the people to rise up against the Romans. In fact, they had tried to do so. The Maccabees had tried to do so, and it had been unsuccessful. And they were at a point where they felt that it was, in fact, better for a few people to suffer at the hands of the Romans than for lots of people to suffer because they couldn't conquer this empire. But they always knew one day, the people knew, there would be a Messiah that would come that would conquer their enemies. And so the Pharisees were worried about unwise provocation of Rome, but the common people, the servants, were hopeful that Rome would be toppled. And I guess, in a way, so were the Pharisees. But they were cozy with the way that things were, the way things were at that time. Consider in your Bibles, if you want to turn back a page or, or, or whatnot, one chapter anyway, John chapter 11, verse 50. Speaking of the high priest that year, Caiaphas, who had an 18-year career as priest, said, You do not understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but he prophesied as the high priest. Well, Caiaphas was no follower of Jesus, now was he? But Caiaphas speaks a mouthful of truth. As one said, if God can get his message across through the mouth of a donkey, he can get his message across through Caiaphas as well. Caiaphas actually testified to a great truth about the Messiah. Indeed, one man would die for the sins of the many, wouldn't he? His name is Jesus. That is exactly what the Messiah did. But the people didn't really understand every action of their lives, and particularly of this most holy week, in light of Christ's glorification. And though we look back at the dates, sometimes we struggle as well to understand what's going on in our lives in light of Christ's glorification. That's what today is about. Now, John the Apostle wrote Revelation. And John, uh, Revelation rather, we'll return to in two weeks, Lord willing. But we're taking a break for this week and next. John, as we've already taught in previous weeks, lived to be an old man. And along the way, he likely wrote five New Testament books. Not only Revelation, lastly, but also the Gospel of John and books titled 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Though if you are noting in your table of contents and trying to learn the books of the Bible you'll find that there's four books titled by the name John, and that can be confusing. Those 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, those little epistles are small, five chapters or less, whereas this 
book of John contains over 20 chapters. And so what we find here is this is his gospel. It is his longer work for we as believers to relish in and understand the risen Lord Jesus Christ through. Now, a little bit more background to understand how Christ's glorification frames the actions of these siblings in this house on Saturday and how, frankly, how Christ's glorification should frame our thoughts about everything we do every day of every week. A little bit more background, though. Lazarus had two sisters named Mary and Martha, or you might say Mary and Martha had a brother named Lazarus. And John gives a full half of this gospel to the events that we describe as Holy Week, but he kicks it off by describing a resurrection that was not Jesus's. He kicks it off by describing the resurrection of this brother to these sisters, Lazarus. In fact, if you read back in John chapter 11, verse 2, we learn Lazarus was deathly ill, and Lazarus' sisters believed Jesus. In fact, they'd witnessed him heal people that were sick. But Jesus was away at the time Lazarus got deathly ill and died, and so Mary and Martha were upset that Jesus wasn't around to heal their brother. In fact, that's the language that they each use that's recorded in John eleven twenty one 21, and 32. They respectively said, If only you'd been here, Jesus, our brother would still be alive. He wouldn't be dead. But Jesus, rather than being present to heal their brother, instead of doing that, He actually, to make a more broad and powerful point, waited until Lazarus was deceased. In fact, not three days, but four. And after four days... Jesus returned, and he, the, he actually uttered words that constitute the shortest verse in our entire English Bible. Do you know what it is? John eleven thirty five. 35, Jesus wept. And he utters those words before he utters an imperative, a command to Lazarus in the tomb. Lazarus, come out! And John eleven forty three tells us that command. And in fact, Lazarus got up, they unbound him, and he lived. And it says this was so that many might believe. And they did. And that was a problem for the Pharisees, for the religious order of the day. Many people were believing in this Messiah, and they simply couldn't, despite what was right in front of their faces. So the popularity of Jesus was the context for the Jews' plot to kill Jesus. You might say there was a bounty on his head. Many wondered if he'd stay hidden, but as I've already divulged, he didn't. He inches closer and closer to Jerusalem for the week of Passover. And here he is at Simon the former leper's house with Lazarus' siblings, Mary and Martha. And Lazarus himself, we read in this text, has a bounty on his head. They want to get rid of the evidence of Jesus' healing power. Jesus has the power to resurrect your body after you die. I think that is an important fact and takeaway from our first point. Lazarus is a formerly, formerly dead man walking. Lazarus was dead four days. It doesn't matter if you're dead four days or 400,000 days. The number of days is irrelevant 
to the power of Jesus to heal and raise his people. It isn't that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, or for that matter, worked any other healing miracle that he worked during his earthly ministry so that those that he healed wouldn't have any more sicknesses. No, in fact, out of everybody that Jesus healed during his earthly ministry, they all went on to die. The blind man, he died. The leper, he died. They all died. In fact, Jesus himself died. He's the only one that didn't earn the right to die. He died in our place as the only man that's ever lived sinless so that he could die in our place. But not to save the political posturing of the Jewish religious leaders in the first century A.D. No, no. He died in our place that we might have salvation through his atoning work for us. We cannot purchase our own salvation. We're disqualified because of our sin. But Jesus was qualified to die for us. That's the reason that we gather to worship. That's the reason we sing songs like, In my place he stood, all my debt nailed to the wood. In fact, the only right response to the purposes of Jesus' healing power is a response to worship him. It's devotion to him. We don't get anything materially that outweighs or outgains His salvation for us. There's nothing that we can get that in addition to Jesus' salvation for us is better than us just having Jesus' salvation. What He has granted us frames everything. And Lazarus had a bounty on his head because of it. When we look at this text, we see that Martha served. That's an interesting phrase because we learn in another place in the New Testament that Martha served, but as she served food, she begrudged her sister Mary for not serving with her. In fact, a bevy of women's studies are created out of Luke 10, 38-42, where Martha is upset because of the fact Mary's not joining her in the kitchen. Now, we won't have time to read those verses today after all, Angela, even though I asked you to pull them up. I apologize in advance. But just to summarize it, let me say it like this. Jesus actually corrected Martha, not because Martha was serving in the kitchen making smelly good foods, but he corrected Martha in this separate incident because she was upset with Mary for sitting and listening to Jesus teach her. And what Jesus said was in that instance, Mary's devotion to him and listening to his teaching was actually the better choice. And he told Martha that that wouldn't be taken from her. I think here Martha has assuredly learned her lesson. Because if you look at this text in John chapter 12, verse 2, it says they gave him a dinner there. And it just simply says Martha served. No record of her being upset. No record of her being upset with her sister. No reason to infer that. Lazarus is reclining at a, in a horseshoe shape, likely would have been at the table, where they were reclining to eat. That Martha surely was a good cook. She seems to have had a lot of experience with it. And Mary, as Mary is prone to do, has things on her mind besides 
being a, a kitchen person. She has things on her mind otherwise. And they both serve and both express devotion, I think, in their own way here. It says that Mary, who surely premeditated this act, she anointed Jesus with her most costly item. And the house was filled now not only with the smells of bread and food dishes, but with the smell of expensive perfume. This text tells us that the ointment itself, the nard, likely imported from India, would have been costly, especially in this instance to this lady. This could have well been her insurance policy. It could have been what she needed to get through life if things went bad. She took her most costly item, likely, and used it to anoint Jesus for his burial. And nobody in the moment understands it. Now, scholars have some debate about whether or not Mary knew that she was anointing Jesus for death. Some of them say that she was devoted to Jesus, but she didn't fully understand what was about to happen. Some say that she did understand what, she, what was about to happen, and she was doing it intentionally in light of that. I can't solve that conundrum for you. And I'll just simply say this. It's not beyond the pale to me to think that Mary, meager Mary, knew what was about to happen to Jesus, that he was, in fact, going to go to the city and he was going to die. For Jesus had foreshadowed his own death many times, and his disciples couldn't quite get their mind around how he was going to be glorified. But I think these ladies were getting it. And I think the disciples were learning a valuable lesson at the hands of these ladies as they anointed Jesus, as she anointed Jesus, rather, and as Martha served Jesus. I think they were learning a lesson that the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve. And if we're going to be Christians following Christ, we too must be engaged in serving instead of simply being served. Now, as a point of application, I'll simply ask this. Do you live your life under the expectation that people will serve you? Is your attitude one of entitlement? That people will do for you and do for you and do for you? The better way, the Christian way, is not to live a life of entitlement but to live a life of service. And you might say, well, I don't have anything to serve with, Pastor. I don't know what you're asking me to do. Well, Mary probably didn't have much either, but that which she had, she used in devotion to Christ. Now, we can take and apply this text all kinds of wonky ways. I mean, I'm not advocating you take the most expensive thing you got and go break it on the rocks outside and call that service to Jesus. I mean, clearly, there was an aptness to the timing of this anointing, wasn't there? I mean, we're not living on March 29th, A.D. 33, on what we now know as Palm Sunday, the day before, on Saturday. We're not living in that context. This is so probably the application is not for you to go find your most expensive perfume or cologne and go break it, right? That's a bad application. But a good application is, what do you have of value that you could use to serve? What has the Lord granted you that you can leverage?
to bring glory to Christ. Differently, how, ha how does the glorified Christ need to frame your actions increasingly as you're coming to understand the purpose of the ministry, the work accomplished and applied by Christ? That's what we get in this elongated first point, I think, is an understanding of how these siblings increasingly were getting it. And what we're going to get in our second point, sadly, is how other people that should have gotten it didn't get it. They didn't understand that Christ's glorification was to, to frame, be the framing lens for everything that they did. It happened that way anyway, but they were grudging about it all. And I think that's what will be the story of the enemies of God in the by and by, sadly. But let's consider now what happened with Judas and also with the Pharisees. Refresh by looking down at verse 4. Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples who was about to betray Jesus, was upset, it says, because he, he said with a thin veneer of altruism, this money could have been given to the poor. But he didn't say that because he cared about the poor, now did he? He said that because he wanted to have for himself. He used to help himself to the money bag, we learn here. He was a thief. Now, ours surely is not so brazen. Ours surely is not that we seek to steal from the money bag of Jesus, although none of us are above it. But we do need to think of places in our lives where perhaps we have pursued money over God. You know, the Bible says that you can't serve both God and money. I was long since uh, challenged not to preach sermons that are moralistic and unhopeful. But as I was preparing for this sermon, I thought that we could achieve both. The moral of not serving money actually exacerbates your hope in Christ. The more that you serve money, the more blinded you are to God's shaping everything in your life. Because money itself is a poor God. Let's not put our hope in materials or what money can buy. Let's put our hope in Jesus Christ. Judas was upset because this money could have been given to the poor, but really he was upset because he had the power to control how that money was used. If only Mary would have slowed down enough to have just listened to their counsel, they could have channeled it the way they wanted it channeled it and done the way that they wanted it done. And Jesus rebukes Judas for it. He says, leave her alone. Let her have this memory. Let her have this. It's not going to be forgotten, we learn in the two accompanying stories that dovetail in and parallel this from Mark and from Matthew. Mark 14 and Matthew 20, in fact. What we find is that leave her alone, Jesus exhorts. Let her keep it for the day of my burial. You're always going to have the poor with you, Jesus says, quoting Deuteronomy, but you do not always have me. He's trying to say, I know your motives, but more than that, I know what I'm about to go through. And she shows more understanding of it than you that are supposed to be my closest followers, my disciples, my apostles. Now, Judas doesn't get it. In fact, he's rotten to the core. And 300 denarii would, would not be on the table when Judas 
rejects Jesus and betrays him into the hands of his persecutors later in the week, would it? It'd just be, what, 30 pieces of silver, I think? So his concern was not really with the poor. Our concern needs to be with the poor, for sure. But let's be very careful as we serve the Lord that we don't make service to the poor an absolute substitute for devotion to Christ. They go together. They're not separate. Differently, we should not hijack the Lord's Day when we come together to worship and marginalize it as if it's unimportant, as if these prayers of praise from call to worship to benediction are somehow ancillary to the, to the Christian life. And everything we're supposed to do is supposed to be out there. Go be the church. Go serve the poor. Well, surely you're supposed to serve the poor. But if acts of devotion were abjectly antithetical to what the Lord has for us, then Mary wouldn't have been praised for doing this, now would she? We're supposed to do both and, not either or. We're supposed to look out for the less fortunate, and we're supposed to come into the Lord's house with praise. We're supposed to leverage our resources to serve others, and we're supposed to do it as we bring devotion to Christ. This Lord's Day is important, and the supper we're going to take together as celebration for what Christ has done for us at the end of this service today is important. We're supposed to do that in perpetuity until the Lord returns. That's what the command is. And so devotion to Christ is, is not antithetical to service to the poor and to matters of justice. We're supposed to be about both. Now, we see how Christ's glorification frames, as we've seen, not only the sisters, but also those that are against Christ. They just don't even realize it. We've already seen it with Judas. We saw it earlier with Caiaphas. Remember, the priest prophesied something, and it actually spoke about the substitutionary atonement of Christ. I don't need to restate all that for you, but he surely didn't mean it that way. He just meant to say it was good that Jesus died so they didn't have to suffer at the hands of the Romans. And we also see here that these Pharisees are so concerned with their gain that they are willing to kill not only Jesus, but also Lazarus, and apparently anybody that gets in their way, in order to protect their way of ruling. Look at verses 9 through 11, and then also the end of the text. It says, When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plans to, kill, to put Lazarus to death as well, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. So far be it from them to just believe in Jesus, they got to get rid of the evidence. And then let your eyes go down to verse 17 and following. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So, the, so Jesus is popular. Well, what's the Pharisees' response? It's kind of like Judas's, isn't it? As you see, you're gaining nothing. Gain is an interesting word usage there, I think, in light of the monetary incentive that we've seen so far in this text and the theme. Gain. You Pharisees, he says, you, got, you see you're not gaining anything. You're not getting the situation under control and using hyperbole because of the world. Surely it wasn't the whole world. But look, the world, the whole, everybody's going after him. The whole world's going after him. And this is the wording of this text to help us understand the mentality of the Pharisees. You're gaining nothing. The whole world's gone after him. They are envious. You know, Proverbs says, that envy makes your bones rot. They're jealous. 
I wonder today if you're a type of person that lives life in a state of perpetual jealousy. I wonder if you're envious of the perceived successes and, and blessings of others. It's very difficult to serve as a Christian if your mind and heart is filled with envy and jealousy. It kind of goes back to the precept of Jesus came to serve and not to be served. If you're sitting around wanting entitled for people to serve you, then how will you fulfill the law of love? How will they know that you're Christians by your love? It's not about what we can accumulate in this life. It's not about the comforts that we can secure for ourselves. Everything that we do is supposed to be leaning into the glorification of Christ. It's supposed to be leaning into and framed by Christ glorified. That's your everything. It's your everything. It's my everything. And I, I don't say that strictly to try to improve your morals. I say that because your eyes are more open to hope as you read and apply verses of Scripture about how to live the Christian life rather than rebel against them and revile them. As the more closed-fisted you are, the longer that you seek to be served, the more bitter you become as your bones rot from the inside out with envy, the more jealous you live, the more you harbor these feelings in your heart, the less your eyes are going to be up to see not only the needs of those people around you, but the glorified Christ. J.C. Ryle said it like this. He said, Their followers and successors are to be found in every part of Christ's church. They press moderation in their service of Christ. If a man devotes his time, money, and possessions to the world, they find no fault. Beside himself, if for Christ, then she's an enthusiast, a, a fanatic. Alistair Begg said, The broken flask of pure nard testified against their broken pragmatism. If this woman had sought their approval before she did what she did, she wouldn't have done it. They would have talked her out of it in high-sounding language. The problem is to see these tendencies in ourselves. We think us this woman, but often the disciples. They scolded her because her ingratitude caused her to give up her great possession. C.T. Studd, Charlie Studd, went to Africa for missions. Famously, he's been quoted... Perhaps you've heard it. This life will soon be passed. Only things done for Christ will last. What you might not know is that Charlie taught his wife to pray this way. Dear Lord Jesus, you are dearer to me than Charlie could be. Dear Lord Jesus, you are dearer to me than Charlie could be. Husbands, it is our job to point our wives to the dearness of Christ. It's idolatrous to set ourselves up as their ultimate good. We're to point them to the goodness of Christ. We're not going to be good enough to fix everything in ourselves, let alone our families. We would be wise to lead our homes in such a way as they might pray, Dear Lord Jesus, you are dearer to me than could be. After C.T. Studd died, he had kept... 100,000 pounds back 
for his wife's care, and she decided to give the money away to William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army. That sacrifice wasn't mandated by the Holy Book, but no sacrifice is too great if it comes from the head and the heart, is it? No sacrifice is too great if it comes from the head and the heart. My mind goes back to that house in Bethany, filled with the fragrance of Martha's food and now Mary's perfume, all reclined in that horseshoe-shaped table as they ate. These disciples learning lessons that are not stale to us from these ladies as they sacrificed their future on the head of Jesus. Only the power of the cross established in our stubborn hearts will take and make us like this. But the cross is powerful, isn't it? It is powerful. In fact, Christ's glorification is to be the framing lens of every action that we take. The siblings seem to understand it. Judas and Caiaphas and the Pharisees didn't. But what of us? In conclusion today, with our third and final point conclusion all wrapped up in one, what of us? Look at John 12, 16 and the verses preceding it. It says his disciples did not understand these things at first. You know, maybe you didn't understand these things at first. I know I didn't. When I started to follow Jesus, it was kind of like a, a get-out-of-hell-free card for me. I didn't quite understand the ramifications of His glorification framing every aspect of my deliberations and actions. I didn't realize that that not only was the expectation, but that that was the hope. Like, if you're hearing this as a moralistic sermon, you're not hearing my heart. You don't have hope if your hope is in what you can gain. There's no hope in materialism. It's an idol. It's a new iteration of the golden calf. Let us make sure that we see and begin slowly to understand. As John 12, 16 says, when Jesus was glorified, then the disciples remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. John's gospel takes great pains to help the reader to understand that the apostles were endowed with God's indwelling spirit. And for that matter, we as believers are endowed with God's indwelling spirit. But they were endowed with the spirit so that they could remember and reflect on what Jesus did during his ministry and tell a small portion of his miraculous works and teachings to us through the writings of Scripture that we might also believe and reflect and through that same Spirit have all the deeds of our life, all of our actions shaped increasingly by Christ's glorification. His disciples didn't understand these things at first, and we don't either. But when we began to see all of our lives through the Jesus is glorified, then we too remember the things that He has done and that have been done to Him that are written about in the words of life. And every action that we persist in trying to achieve begins to be shaped more and more by Christ's glory and not our own. And then we find hope in not what we have, but in what He has given us. 
then we find hope not in what we can attain or what we can gain, but on what he has gained for us. This is why the Apostle Paul said, Everything I gained with my religious systems I count as loss. Compare, it's rubbish, Philippians says, compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ as Lord. Isn't that good? That's the gospel. And no amount of material comfort will fill the hole in your heart that only the gospel of Christ can fill. His glorification is the center of all of our actions, known or unknown. I'm particularly reminded of that Sunday, what we call Palm Sunday. And I reflect here today on verses 12 to 15 in light of that. It said, a large crowd had come to the feast, heard that Jesus, they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. He wasn't ducking away. And they took branches of palm trees. They went out to meet him. And just same as he had been anointed, they coronate him king. They cry out. They sing the Hallel Psalm from Psalm 118. As David read earlier in the service, Hosanna, or the Lord saves. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They didn't even fully realize what they were, what they were, what they were saying. I mean, there have been many messianic hopefuls come. But they, they were hopeful. They were hopeful he would create the kingdom right then and there and fix Rome. Uh, they took the branches and the palm trees and they laid them out for him and sang and waved and cloaks were laid down. And they anointed him king of Israel. Remember, it was tacked on his cross when he was crucified between two petty thieves a few days later. King of Israel. And Jesus doesn't ride in on a war horse. He rides in humbly on a donkey. And here comes the king. Fulfilling all prophecy, Zechariah 9, 9 and onward. And the disciples only understand after they see and receive the entire gospel, after what Jesus' triumphal entry was all about, what Palm Sunday was about. And it's fitting as we consider what's to come for us that we need to learn what Revelation says, that on the great day of the Lord, right, there's going to be palm branches the coronation of a king in his coming only eclipsed in his second coming. And you don't want to be found as an enemy of Christ. You don't want to be in the ilk of Judas and the Pharisees when Jesus comes again. So for the believer this morning, I hope you find hope in framing every action in your life around not what you can gain, but Christ's glorification. For the unbeliever this morning, I hope that you will be compelled to surrender all your aspirations for personal gain and establishment and throw all the perfume of your life, everything that you own and have, into Jesus because he will never let you down, ever, ever, ever. He's not like Napoleon. He's not like wicked rulers who's, who we say to, ours is not to wonder why, ours is just to do than die. No, no, no. With Jesus, even when we don't know why, and even when we do and then we die, He has gone before us in the way of the cross. He has gone before us as the model servant, and He has gone before us to atone for our sins, to do for us, for us what we could not do for ourselves. Receive that gospel in Jesus' name. Amen. I now invite you to take the Lord's Supper.
with us today. If you're a baptized believer in good standing with the members.